Section 22 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III. 1825 to 1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 23, New Measures of Oppression and Public Protests. Part 1. 1. The Despair of Russian Jewry. The civil new year of 1882 found the Jews of Russia in a depressed state of mind. They were under the fresh impression of the excesses at Warsaw and were harassed by rumors of new measures of oppression. The sufferings of the Jewish people, far from stealing the anti-Jewish fury of the government, had merely helped to fan it. You are maltreated, although you are guilty. Such was the logic of the ruling spheres of Russia. The official historian of that period is honest enough to confess that the enforced role of a defender of the Jews against the Russian population by suppressing the riots weighed heavily upon the government. Upon reading the report of the Governor-General of Warsaw for the year 1882, in which references were made to the suppression of the anti-Jewish excesses by military force, Alexander III appended the following marginal note. This is the sad thing in all these Jewish disorders. Those among Russian Jewry who could look further ahead were not slow in realizing the consequences which were bound to result from this hostile attitude of the ruling classes. Those of a less sensitive frame of mind found it necessary to inquire of the government itself concerning the Jewish future and received unequivocal replies. Thus, in January 1882, Dr. Orshansky, a brother of the well-known publicist, approached Count Ignatiev on the subject and was authorized to publish the following statement. The Western frontier is open for the Jews. The Jews have already taken ample advantage of this right, and their emigration has in no way been hampered. As regards your question concerning the transplantation of Jews into the Russian interior, the government will, of course, avoid everything that may further complicate the relations between the Jews and the original population. For this reason, though keeping the pale of Jewish settlement intact, I have already suggested to the Jewish committee attached to the ministry to indicate those localities which, being thinly populated and in need of colonization, might admit the settlement of the Jewish element without injury to the original population. This reply of the all-powerful minister, which was published as a special supplement to the Jewish weekly Razviet, increased the panic among the Jews of Russia. The Jews were publicly told that the government wished to get rid of them and that the only right they were to be granted was the right to depart, that no enlargement of the pale of settlement could possibly hoped for, and that only as an extreme necessity would the government allow groups of Jews to colonize 
the uninhabitable steppes of Central Asia or the swamps of Siberia. Well-informed people were in possession of much more serious information. They knew that the Jewish committee attached to the Ministry of the Interior was preparing a monstrous plan of reducing the territory of the Pale of Settlement itself by expelling the Jews from the villages and driving them into the overcrowded cities. The soul of the Jewish people were filled with sorrow, and yet there was no way of protesting publicly in the land of political slavery. The Jews had to resort to the old medieval form of a national protest by pouring forth their feeling in the synagogue. Many Jewish communities seem to have come to an understanding to appoint the 18th of January as a day of mourning to be observed by fasting and by holding religious services in the synagogues. This public mourning ceremony proved particularly impressive in St. Petersburg. On the appointed day, the whole Jewish population of the Russian capital, with its numerous Jewish professionals, assembled in the principal synagogue and in the other houses of prayer, reciting the hymns of perpetual Jewish martyrdom, the Seliot. In the principal synagogue, the rabbi delivered a discourse dealing with the Jewish persecutions. When the preacher, an eyewitness narrates, began to picture in a broken voice the present position of Jewry, one long mourn, coming as it were from one breast, suddenly burst forth and filled the synagogue. Everybody wept, the old, the young, the long-robed paupers, the elegant dandies dressed in latest fashion, the men in government service, the physicians, the students, not to speak of the women. For two or three minutes did these heart-rending moans resound, this cry of common sorrow which had issued from the Jewish heart. The rabbi was unable to continue. He stood upon the pulpit, covered his face with his hands, and wept like a child. Similar political demonstrations in the presence of the Almighty were held during those days in many other cities. In some places, the Jews observed a three-day fast. Everywhere, the college youth, otherwise estranged from Judaism, took part in the national mourning, full of presentiment that it too was destined to endure decades of sorrows and tears. 2. The Voice of England and America The political protest, which could not be uttered in Russia, was soon to be heard in England. During the very days on which the Russian Jews were weeping in their synagogues, their English co-religionists, in conjunction with prominent English political leaders, organized indignation meetings to protest against the horrors of Russian Judeophobia. Already at an earlier date, shortly after the pogrom of Warsaw, the London Times had published a series of articles under the heading The Persecutions of the Jews in Russia, containing a heart-rending description of the pogroms of 1881 and an account of the anti-Semitic policy of the Russian rulers. The articles produced a sensation. Reprinted in the form of a special publication, which in a short time went through three editions, 
they spread far beyond the confines of England. Numerous voices were soon to be heard demanding diplomatic intercession in favor of the oppressed Jews and calling for the organization of material relief for the victims of the pogroms. Russian diplomacy was greatly disconcerted by the growth of this anti-Russian agitation in a country whose government, headed at the time by Gladstone, endeavored to maintain friendly relations with Russia. The organ of the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Journal de St. Petersburg, published two articles attempting to refute the most revolting facts contained in the articles of the Times. It denied that there had been cases of rape and asserted that murders were exceedingly rare. The official organ further stated that the government has already begun to consider new legislative measures concerning the Jews without mentioning, however, that these measures were of a repressive character. The mouthpiece of Russian diplomacy asked in an irritated tone whether the pro-Jewish agitators wished to sow discord between the Russian and the English people and spoil the friendly relations between these two powers which Gladstone's government had established, reversing the contrary policy of Beaconsfield. However, these diplomatic polemics were unable to restrain the English political leaders from proceeding with the arrangements for the project demonstrations. After a whole series of protest meetings in various cities of England, a large mass meeting was called at the Mansion House in London under the chairmanship of the Lord Mayor. The elite of England was represented at the meeting, including members of Parliament, dignitaries of the Church, the titled aristocracy, and men of learning. A number of prominent persons who were unable to present sent letters expressing their warm sympathy with the aims of the gathering. Among them were Tennyson, Sir John Lubbock, and others. The first speaker, the Earl of Shaftesbury, pointed out that the English people did not wish to meddle in the inner affairs of Russia, but desired to influence it by moral weapons in the name of the principle of the solidarity of nations. The official deniers of the atrocities he brushed aside with the remark that if but a tenth part of the reports were true, it is sufficient to draw down the indignation of the world. It was necessary, in the opinion of Shaftesbury, to appeal directly to the Tsar and ask him to be a Cyrus to the Jews and not an Antiochus Epiphanes. The Bishop of London, speaking in the absence of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the primate of the Anglican Church, reminded his audience that only several years previously, England had been horrified by the outrages perpetrated by the Turkish Bashbuzuks upon the Bulgars, who were then defended by Russia, and it had now a right to protest against Christian Russia as it had formerly done against Mohammedan Turkey. The most powerful speech was delivered by Cardinal Manning, the great Catholic divine. He pointed to the fact that the Russian Jews were not only the object of temporary pogroms, but that they constantly groaned 
under the yoke of a degrading legislation which says to the Jews, You may not pass beyond that boundary. You must not go within 18 miles of that frontier. You must not dwell in that town. You must live only in that province. He calls laughter in the audience by quoting from Ignatieff's famous circular concerning the appointment of the gubernatorial commissions in which, commenting upon the terrible atrocities recently perpetrated upon the Jews, the minister lamented the sad condition of the Christian inhabitants of the southern provinces. Cardinal Manning concluded his eloquent address with the following words, marked by a lofty prophetic strain. There is a book which is common to the race of Israel and to us Christians. That book is the bond between us, and in that book I read that the people of Israel are the eldest people upon the earth. Russia and Austria and England are of yesterday, compared with the imperishable people, which with an inextinguishable life and immutable traditions, and faith in God and in the laws of God, scattered as it is all over the world, passed through the fires unscattered, trampled into the dust, and yet never combining with the dust into which it is trampled, lives still a witness and warning to us. After several more speeches by Canon Ferrer, Professor Bryce, and others, the following resolutions were adopted. 1. That in the opinion of this meeting, the persecution and the outrages which the Jews in many parts of the Russian dominions have for several months past suffered are an offense to the Christian civilization and to be deeply deplored. 2. That this meeting, while disclaiming any rights or desire to interfere in the internal affairs of another country and desiring that the most amicable relations between England and Russia should be preserved, feels it a duty to express its opinion that the laws of Russia relating to Jews tend to degrade them in the eyes of the Christian population and expose Russian Jewish subjects to the outbreaks of fanatical ignorance. 3. That the Lord Mayor be requested to forward a copy of these resolutions to the Right Honorable W.B. Gladstone and the Right Honorable Earl Granville, in the hope that Her Majesty's government may be able, when an opportunity arises, to exercise a friendly influence with the Russian government in accordance with the spirit of the preceding resolutions. Finally, a resolution was adopted to open a relief fund for the sufferers of the pogroms and for improving the conditions of Russian Jewry by emigration as well as by other means. The committee chosen by the meeting for this purpose included the Lord Mayor, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cardinal Manning, the Bishop of London, Nathaniel de Rothschild, and others. A few days after the Mansion House meeting, the English government responded to the resolutions adopted on that occasion. The following dispatch, dated London, February 9th appeared in the Russian papers. In the House of Commons, Gladstone, replying to the interpellation of Sir John Simon, 
stated that reports concerning the persecutions of the Jews in Russia had been received from the English consuls and could not but inspire sentiments of the utmost pain and horror. But the matter being an internal affair of another country, it could not become the object of official correspondence or inquiry on the part of England. All that could be done was to make casual and unofficial representations. All other actions touching the question of the relations of the Russian government to the Jews were more likely to harm than to help the Jewish population. Footnote. On this occasion, Gladstone merely repeated the words of the Russian official communication, which had been published on the eye of the Mansion House meeting, in the hope of scaring the organizers of the protest. The Russian government, which has always most scrupulously refrained from interfering in the inner affairs of other countries, is correspondingly unable to allow a similar violation of international practice by others. Any attempts on the part of another government to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people can only have the result of calling forth the resentment of the lower classes and thereby affect unfavorably the conditions of the Russian Jews. In addition to this threat, the imperial messenger endeavored to prove that the measures adopted by the government against the pogroms were not weak, as may be seen from the large numbers of those arrested by the police after the disorders, which amounted to 3,675 in the south and to 3,151 in Warsaw. End of footnote. Another telegram sent from London on February 14 contained the following communications. In the House of Commons, Gladstone, replying to Baron Worms, stated that no humane purposes would be achieved by parliamentary debates about the Jews of Russia. Such debates were rather likely to arouse the hostility of a certain portion of the Russian population against the Jews, and that, therefore, no day would be appointed for the debate, as requested by Worms. In this way, matters were smoothed over to the great satisfaction of Russian diplomacy. The public and government of England confined themselves to expressing their feelings of disgust at the treatment of the Jews in Russia but no immediate representations to St. Petersburg were attempted by Gladstone's cabinet. For the same reason, the English Prime Minister refused to forward to its destination a petition addressed to the Russian government by the Jews of England with Baron Rothschild at their head. Count Ignatiev had no cause for worry. The misunderstanding with the friendly government had been removed and the fury protest at the English meetings interfered but little with his peace of mind. He pursued his course, unabashed by the disgust which it aroused in the whole civilized world. The voice of protest against the Russian barbarities which resounded throughout England was seconded in far-off America. Long before the accession of Alexander III, the government of the United States had repeated occasion to make representations to the Russian government 
with reference to its treatment of the Jews. These representations were prompted by the fact that American citizens of the Jewish faith were subjected during their stay in Russia to the same disabilities and discriminations which the Russian government imposed upon its own Jews. Yet, actuated by broader humanitarian considerations, the United States government became interested in the general question of the position of Russian Jewry and invited reports from its representatives at St. Petersburg on the subject. On April 14, 1880, the Secretary of State, William M. Evatt, responding to a petition of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, who had complained about the extraordinary hardships which the Jews of Russia were made to suffer at that time, directed the United States Minister at St. Petersburg, John W. Forster, to bear in mind the liberal sentiments of this government and to express its views in a manner which will subserve the interest of religious freedom. Acting upon these instructions, Foster took occasion to discuss the Jewish question in his conversations with leading Russian officials about which he reported fully to his government. On May 22nd of the same year, a resolution was passed by the House of Representatives requesting the President to lay before it all available information relating to the cases of expulsion of American citizens of the Jewish faith from Russia and, at the same time, to communicate to this House all correspondence in reference to the proscription of Jews by the Russian government. The pogroms of 1881 and the indignation they aroused among the American people induced the United States government to adopt a more energetic form of protest. In his dispatch to the United States Minister at St. Petersburg, dated April 15, 1882, the new Secretary of State, Frederick T. Frelinghuysen, takes account of the prevailing sentiment in the country in these words. The prejudice of race and creed, having in our day given way to the claims of our common humanity, the people of the United States have heard with great regret the stories of the sufferings of the Jews in Russia. He therefore notifies the minister that the feeling of friendship which the United States entertains for Russia prompts this government to express the hope that the imperial government will find means to cause the persecution of this unfortunate being to cease. A more emphatic note of protest was sounded in the House of Representatives by Samuel S. Cox of New York, who, in his lengthy speech delivered on July 31, 1882, scathingly denounced the repressive methods practiced by the Russian government against the Jews, and more particularly the outrages which had been perpetrated upon them during the preceding year. He makes the former directly responsible for the latter. In his opinion, the pogroms were not merely a spontaneous and sudden outburst of the Russian populace against the Jews, but rather the slow result of the disabilities and discriminations 
which are imposed upon the Jews by the Russian government and are bound to degrade them in the eyes of their fellow citizens. It is said that the Russian peasantry, not the government, are responsible. I answer, if the peasantry of Russia are too ignorant or debased to understand the nature of this cruel persecution, they have warrant for their conduct in the customs and laws of Russia to which I have referred. These discriminate against the Jews. They have reference to their isolation, their separation from Russian protection, their expulsion from certain parts of the empire, and their religion. When a peasant observes such forceful movements and authoritative discrimination in a government against the race, it arouses his ignorance and inflames his fanatical zealotry. Adding this to the jealousy of the Jews as middlemen and businessmen, and you may account for, but not justify, these horrors. The Hebraic-Russian question has been summed up in a few words. Extermination of two and one-half millions of mankind because they are Jews. After giving an elaborate account of the horrors which had taken place in Russia during 1881, he wound up his speech with the following eloquent appeal. This people is one of the survivors with Egypt, China, and India of the infancy of mankind. It is at the mercy of the cruel despot of the North. With a lineage unrivaled for purity, a religious sentiment and ethics drawn out of the glory and greatness of Mount Sinai, with an eternal influence from its lawgivers, prophets, and psalmists, never vouchsafed to any language, race, or creed, it outlives the philosophies and myths of Greece and the grandeur and power of Rome. It is this race, broken-hearted and scattered, to which the Tsar of all the Russias adds the enormity of his rule upon the victims of the ignorance and slander of the ages. The birthright of this race is thus despoiled. And so, have we no words of protest? Struggling against adversities, which no other people have encountered, do they not yet survive? The wine from the crushed grape? The resolution introduced by him on that occasion was to the following effect. Whereas the government of the United States should exercise its influence with the government of Russia to stay the spirit of persecution as directed against the Jews and protect the citizens of the United States resident in Russia and seek redress for injuries already inflicted, as well as to secure by wise and enlightened administration the Hebrew subject of Russia and the Hebrew citizens of the United States resident in Russia against the recurrence of wrongs. Therefore, resolved that the President of the United States, if not incompatible with the public service, report to this House any further correspondence in relation to the Jews in Russia not already communicated to this House. The resolution, which was referred to the Committee on Foreign Affairs, was finally passed by the House on February 23, 1883.
the sentiments of the broad masses of the American people had found utterance somewhat earlier at a big protest meeting which was held in February 1882 in the city of New York, where the first refugees from Russia had begun to arrive. A resolution was adopted protesting against the spirit of medieval persecution thus revived in Russia and calling upon the government of the United States to make energetic representations to St. Petersburg. One of the speakers at the New York meeting, Judge Noah Davis, said amidst the enthusiastic applause of the audience, Let them come. I would to heaven. It were in our power to take the whole three million Jews of Russia. The valley of the Mississippi alone could throw her strong arms around and draw them all to her opulent bosom and bless them with homes of comfort, prosperity, and happiness. Thousands of them are praying to come. The throne of Jehovah is besieged with prayers for the powers of escape, and if they cannot live in peace under Russian laws without being subject to these awful persecutions, let us aid them in coming to us. These words of the speaker, uttered in a moment of oratorial exhortation, voiced the secret wish cherished by many enthusiasts of the Russian ghetto. End of section 22